This is the global edition of the Business Disability Forum podcast. Who are we? The people behind the job title. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Business Disability Forum podcast. The theme of this series is identity, and over the next few episodes, we'll be exploring the topic through conversations with disabled people who are working internationally or making a global impact. And my guest today is Caroline Casey. Caroline is an award-winning social entrepreneur, a Shoka Fellow, a Young World Global Leader of the World Economic Forum, and a TED speaker whose talk has been viewed over two million times. So since deciding to leave a career in management consulting at the age of 28, Caroline has dedicated herself to campaigning for the inclusion of people with disabilities. As an example, directly after leaving her job at Accenture in 2000, Caroline, who herself is legally blind, rode a thousand kilometers across India on an elephant to raise awareness and money for sight savers. Fast forward to 2017 and in August, Caroline launched Hashtag Valuable, which is a worldwide call to action for business to recognize the value and potential of the 1 billion people people living in the world with a disability and to position disability equality on the business global agenda. The campaign was launched in 2017 at the One Young World Summit in Bogota following another 1,000 kilometer trek, this time on horseback through Colombia. And more recently in 2019, Caroline made history by taking disability inclusion to the main stage of the World Economic Forum in Davos. There, along with Unilever CEO Paul Polman and a host of other business leaders, Caroline launched the Valuable 500, which aims to get 500 companies to commit to putting disability on their board agenda during 2019. So at BDF, we're a proud expert partner of Valuable and Caroline. It's been a while and I've been looking forward to talking with you today. Hello, that is one long intro. <laughs> and I cut out about 17 years of your life in writing. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just say the, the woman never stops, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give you a proper introduction, but look, like, how do you introduce yourself? You know, this is a question I think all of us are asked, regardless of who we are. You know, I, I think at the moment what I'm saying is, hi, I'm Caroline Casey, an inclusion revolutionary who's going to put disability on the global business leadership agenda. I've been doing it for 18 years and the fire is still burning. I, I think that is the only way I know how to describe myself at the moment. Well, that is certainly more succinct than the introduction I gave you. <laughs> yes, but there's lots of reasons why I'm still, the fire is still burning and that revolution is inside me because of the 18 years and mm -hmm. because of all the pieces of my life that have brought me to here, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I'm really looking forward to digging into, into some of the things that have happened over that time and, and definitely some of your recent activity. So you mentioned like you've been, you've been going at this for 18 years and like a lot of our audience are going to be familiar with you and some of your work, but maybe if we could go back to the beginning. So look, I mentioned in, in the introduction that you have like a visual impairment. So, and mm -hmm. I also know I've heard you tell your story that there's quite an extraordinary story behind that and how you came to be aware of your condition. So like, are you able to give us a, an introduction and a summary of yeah, there? I have a condition called ocular albinism. I'm somebody who has albinism. And what's different about ocular albinism, it's not so identifiable, meaning my hair is blonde, but it's not very white. And my eyes are blue, but not very pink. Now, my skin is very, very pale, but I, you wouldn't, I don't really look any different than a very pale Irish woman. <laughs> so that's so not, that's not necessarily unusual. I was born this way because it's a genetic condition. I'm now this year going to be 48 and I was diagnosed just before I was a year and my parents made a very unusual decision to send me to school as a sighted child, send me to a normal school, not the a special needs school or not to send me to a blind school. 
I also have myopia, short-sightedness, so I wear glasses like anybody who does. But that, when I put my glasses on, I am registered blind. So, and to explain my sight is with my glasses on, it's for anybody else, it's like having Vaseline over your glasses. Um, I have about two feet vision. I went to school, to a normal school, thinking that I saw the same as any other child who wore corrective glasses, obviously not seeing at all very well, and grew up believing that I, there was nothing wrong with my eyes other than being short-sighted. And that was at 17. And it is an extraordinary story, but uh, my father gave me a driving lesson for my 17th birthday, which is just totally crazy because I always wanted to have the chance to race cars and motorbikes. And I had dreams of being an adventurer like Mowgli from the Jungle Book or a cowgirl. And he decided we'll we'll give her a driving lesson. And it was on my 17th birthday I found out, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be. (laughs) I wouldn't be driving a car or a motorbike. And actually that was probably the most insane non-suitable presents to give to your child who has uh, ocular albinism and that's when I discovered the name the condition and what it meant wow it's a curious thing to kind of acquire a disability that you've like that you've always had yeah I love that you noticed that I tell people that I feel like I'm somebody who acquired a disability and they were like but you were born with it but I wasn't I was born physically with it but I acquired it I consciously acquired it when I was 17 so I think I have this very strange view of the world. It's kind of limbo. I feel like I lived the first 17 years of my life without the label of disability, which I did, and also without being disabled. Mm -hmm. But of course I was, it's just that I didn't know I was. And I acquired this disability at 17 or the knowledge of it. And then I did my first conscious act of discrimination and I rejected it. Mm -hmm. And at 17, I had no intention of owning it and then hid it very successfully through a series of careers from archaeology to uh, horticulturist to masseuse, went to business school and then went into Accenture as a management consultant and nobody knew. The reason why I I phrased it that way, because I have like my own experience of, uh, it's not quite as dramatic, but I was diagnosed as having dyslexia when I was 20. It's that thing of like, no, but nobody else knew. So it wasn't like any, like it was a secret that other people had been keeping from me. Although a few people, maybe my my family felt a bit embarrassed when uh, when they didn't. But it's it's only recognized like some of those elements of of acquiring a condition that you've had since since birth. But I I talk about that a lot. I I think people kind of go, oh my gosh, that's extraordinary, your story. And I would often refer to, I think there's a lot of people my age who had undiagnosed dyslexia. I I talk about that quite a lot. And I think that is equally as confounding to me. I mean, how, how hard it must be, how hard, how hard it must have been to get through school. So in a way, I I really relate to that story. And I think this, the, the ocular albinism story is because we don't look like we're visually impaired, whatever that's supposed to look like that moment where you where you find out by surprise and you said you you got this label and I guess I'm struck by yeah materially nothing changes like your eyesight is no better or worse than the day before but yet what's changed is you have this label and then the change is really about how you think about yourself how others think about you and I guess how you think other people might think about you so I wonder if you could talk to me a bit about that maybe some of the assumptions that you thought you made on behalf of other people in terms of how they would respond yeah I think well first of all On my birthday last year, it was 30 years since I had discovered about my sight. And the extraordinary thing was I was on the stage of One Young World in The Hague. 
with Paul Perlman essentially hinting that we were going to be launching the Valuable 500 in Davos and all the boldness of me. Of course, not having it secured at that point, but just the devil. And I think that really falls into how my perceptions were. Is because when I was 17, and I'm thinking about that 30 years ago, it seemed like I had seen how disability was perceived by the world back in 1988. And it's not something I could relate to, nor is it something I wanted. I was convinced that if people knew about my site, I might be seen as broken goods or damaged or weak or not capable of doing the job or not capable of having the life I wanted. And you can hear me say that I had these great, crazy freedom adventure ambitions. And so in my mind at that time, disability was going to stop that, curtail that, make my life smaller, define it, already have decided for me what I could and couldn't do. And that was my misconception at the time. Because what I did learn as I, as I moved through my life, and certainly in the time when I came out of the closet, the disability closet when I was 28, I actually really saw two, two very important things. One is, it's, my, it's the six inches between my ears, my mind, my brain, my attitude is what matters actually. Regardless of what environment we live in, what condition that we have, what disability, it's how we deal with ourselves and our sense of self-acceptance, which is number one. And the second part of it is actually part of what I was worried about is true. And it certainly was true back in 1988. The world isn't necessarily equally welcoming for somebody who has a disability. So I've been living that juxtaposition all my life, knowing that I am responsible for myself and my attitude and self-acceptance and working towards that is very important. But on the other side of it, the world isn't it's not just an equal for just under 20% of our population. And yet I don't want to ever feel like a victim to that. Mm -hmm. And I think then by finally owning my site publicly, I grew up, I think. Yeah. One of the, the quotes that I had found when I was preparing for our, our chat, you were talking about bravery and the role of bravery. And I think you had said yeah. that one of the bravest things that anyone can do is to, is to truly be themselves. How do you get to that point? How do you develop that bravery? Like what are the foundations oh. for that bravery? Oh my God, you know, some people can do it young and early and I have the greatest admiration for people who can truly be themselves. It's just, there's something, I think it's an amazing thing. And I think it is very hard to truly be yourself all the time. I think the journey of self-acceptance is a journey. And I certainly don't think owning your disability is any more difficult than owning any secret. Uh, I think lots of us have secrets we carry inside because so we so desperately want to belong as human beings. I mean, that's just part of being a human is connection and love and belonging. I mean, that's just who we are. It's, that's how we're set up. That's why we're very tribal. But I think we can often get the, the desire to belong mixed up with trying to fit in <laughs> to belong. And so in that desire to belong, we have a tendency to try and fit in. And that's maybe shutting down parts of ourselves or not disclosing parts of ourselves for fear of that, of not of fitting in. A quote I read quite recently, which I absolutely am in love with, is Maya Angelou's quote, which is, there is no greater agony than an untold story within you. And I think that is about the best way that I can describe why I eventually came out of that closet. Because the untold story of Caroline of who I really was had started just 
it had to come out because hiding who I was because of my sight, trying to be somebody that I wasn't became exhausting. Mm. I nearly overcompensating <laughs> to try and distract eventually started to give way to exhaustion and sadness, I think, and then frustration and eventually anger. Mm. And the only person that I could be angry with was myself. It's, it wasn't the world around me. It was me. And it became an agony. It became an agony. And also because I was trying to keep up with my vision or my, my low vision, there is every single aid that you can imagine to, to be an accommodation. There's no reason that I should have put myself through any of this. This was ridiculous, reckless behavior. And because of this vanity, I think, or this fear, or this, I just didn't want to ask for help. And that's a very, that's a Casey thing. I'm a, I'm a Casey, I'm a trucker. So that's nothing to do with my sight. That is just, I didn't want to ask for help. And that I need to do therapy for that, for starters. But, you know, because I wasn't using the aids that were there, I actually temporarily damaged my remaining vision. And that is just, that was just mad. So the combination of the physical deterioration of what was left of my sight, the agony of not feeling like I was being authentically myself, uh, it just eventually gave way. And um, I just didn't like myself anymore, Brendan. I think that's what it was. I, I just didn't, I didn't like who I was turning into. And, and did that, that kind of move to, to kind of more embrace that side of it? Did that coincide with you leaving your role as a, as a management consultant? Well, I didn't actually leave my role in Accenture. What happened was I disclosed to HR. They sent me to a wonderful eye specialist to try and see how, you know, because by the way, I was succeeding in Accenture. It wasn't that I wasn't. I was one of their achievers. I was doing really well. But it was costing me hugely physically and actually emotionally. And when I saw the eye specialist, his attitude was, you know, very quickly, look, this really isn't about your sight. This is really about your mentality. This is about how you view yourself, how you see your sight, excusing the pun, mm -hmm. but that's essentially was like, get over yourself. Mm -hmm. And he, he suggested I, I took some time off to let my eyes recover. And that's really when this whole crazy idea of going across India on an elephant came from, because you know, I needed to take some time off. I needed to, and I think really I needed to build my confidence in myself. And that's why I decided that, well, why not become Mowgli from the Jungle Book? And I know that sounds so crazy, but it was really reasonable to me then. And, uh, you know, it was this month, 19 years ago that I decided to do that because I'd always been in love with elephants. And I was, I'd had this dream to be Mowgli since I was seeing the Jungle Book when I was six and a half. And I'd loved Mark Shan's book, Travel on My Elephants. So it just seemed, oh, well, okay, rock hard place. Let's just run away. And that's what I decided to do. And I guess there's a thing, and I, I joke and I say, well, I'm Irish and Catholic and guilty, but that's very much part of my thing. And I didn't, couldn't do it for myself. So I decided I'd raise money for Sight Savers International and the National Council for the Blind. And that's where my segue into the work that I do now and why I know Business Disability Forum is because I wrote away to like hundreds of companies in Ireland to sponsor this extraordinary adventure. Mm. Now, National Geographic, we're going to film it. And like, come on, but a visually impaired blonde Irish girl becoming Mowgli from Jungle Book was a story. So surely I would get sponsorship. And I set myself a target of a quarter of a million. But every single company, without exception, wrote back and said, we don't do disability. Right. That's where my... 19 years work now began. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> 
what? You know, I was so naive. I had no idea the scale of the disability inequality crisis that existed across the world. I had no idea how separate disability was from business. I could not understand it. It did not make sense to me. And that's really where my passion for business as a solution to um, the inclusion of people with disabilities across the world based and grounded in business has been an obsession. One of the questions I had for you, which I think you've actually answered, was just around the journey that obviously once you had started to kind of ex- this journey of acceptance of your own situation, like how did you make that that leap from thinking about yourself and your own circumstances to thinking more broadly about the experience of, of others? And it sounds like that trip to India was the start of that. And then I guess thinking about the wider kind of ecosystem that you would need to influence to have an impact for, for a wider group of people. Well, I think it's two things. One is the nature of my siblings and myself and how we were brought up. We are I think a, a very empathetic family, very compassionate. My brother is a palliative nurse. My sister actually works for the National Council of the Blind. We were always taught to think outside ourselves. I mean, that's been a thing that's just in our DNA. And so I think it was very quick when I saw a problem. I was like, oh my gosh, how, how can I be part of solving it? Also, my father was an entrepreneur, yeah. a business entrepreneur. So, you know, I didn't lick the entrepreneurial skills from the stones. It was DNA, it's in me. But the other thing I, I think, I don't, this is not about giving me credit. I think it's the completely opposite. I actually sought to try and solve a problem outside myself quicker than I did to accept myself. And I think this is something I've really learned as I've grown older. Because when I was in Colombia, when we were doing hashtag valuable, you know, the predecessor to valuable 500, I came face to face with my low vision again. And I had a huge identity crisis, massive. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, don't they say that you, it's something about, you know, you should put on your own oxygen mask first before you, you do children. Yep. I don't know, Brenda, maybe I, I'm starting to think now that I, it was easier for me to go try fix the world in a problem yep. rather than think about how I saw myself. Yep. Uh, and, and I say that with a slight bent head of shame because, you know, I think, as I keep saying, I think you journey towards self-acceptance all the time and, and can I say this is not just about my sight this is about lots of things mm-hmm. so I think we're very, we can distract ourselves so don't give me credit is what I'd say I think there was a two-way thing one is to give and to be part of a solution and the other was probably to avoid what I didn't want to deal with yeah I think that makes sense and I think that's probably the truth for for many people and actually you have reminded me of something and this I wondered how whether I was going to have to shoehorn this in but um, I think you've reminded me of something that's relevant so for people listening Caroline and I had been talking earlier about the existence of another Caroline Casey (laughs) who is an American astrologer and I was saying to Caroline that in preparing for this uh, for our conversation I had discovered this other Caroline Casey and because I'm a curious person and uh, somebody who's also easily distracted I ended up jumping around a few web pages on astrology and learning about the planets and trying to understand how the gods can can work for me but one of the things that she's the thing that actually dragged me back into into disability world and and you Caroline was so I mean, she was talking about what can happen when people are dedicated to liberating themselves I think she, the quote was liberating themselves by liberating the world which is maybe that kind of speaks to that point about wow. Like you focus on other people, yes. but it's really a, wow. a path to, to focusing on yourself. Wow. I, Caroline Casey has to be Caroline Casey. I mean, I, I think that is a very beautifully succinct way, I think, of part of my strategy. Yeah. Wow. I think that's very true for me. I thought if I could do something 
really good beyond myself, then I would think that I was good enough. Wow. Well, it sounds like the two Caroline Casey's. If you're not the same person, <laughs> I'm kind of suspicious, actually. I've met somebody who knows us both and said, you two Caroline Casey's, we get on very well. Uh, and I, I'm known to be slightly crazy. You know, I'm, I'm the girl who wears sparkly wings on a denim jacket and goes in to meet CEOs around the world. And apparently I'm, I'm very boring compared to the other Caroline Casey. And I wouldn't have said I was a boring person, but <laughs> apparently compared to other Caroline, I am. You mentioned about CEOs and I've heard you say like a, a number of times, like how obsessed you are with the, with the role that business has to play in creating a better world in general, but like specifically on this topic, you know, that we're interested in in terms of disability inclusion. So can you talk to me about why that is? Like, why do you think, why do you think business has such an important role to play? Every single part of our lives, every moment of our lives, every second of our day is probably touched by business in some way. And I'm not talking, you don't have to be multinational business. I'm just talking about everything around you. Mm. You know, think about it. you've got to put clothes on and you've got to eat. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a job, you go to a job and all those things. Business is the most powerful force on the planet. And I, there's no doubt. Uh, it, look, even Hollywood and celebrity is business anyway. So business is business. And I fundamentally believe that inclusive business will create an inclusive society. The standard that business sets is the way that society will, will follow. The majority of the time. So if business does not recognize the value of the people with disabilities and their families right across a value chain, then how on earth are we expecting society to? Disability is not a medical issue alone, nor is it a charity issue, nor is it a government issue. It's none of these things. It's a human issue. It's a societal issue. It's part of our human condition. But if the most powerful force is not at the table recognizing that value, and how we can release the potential of people with disabilities and their families in whatever way. And if you exclude them, if, if we are actively excluding people with disabilities, then I just do not see that we're ever going to come to a place of to rectify the exclusion crisis that exists for people with disabilities. And I don't even want to do it because it's a worthy thing to do, because honestly, that doesn't, it just doesn't play truck with me. It's absolutely the right thing to do for sure. But there is value in 20% of our global population and their families. I mean, there's a value in this as suppliers and talent and consumers. And we don't need your, your sympathy. We need you to release our potential into the business ecosystem. And I think that means there's a triple line benefit. I mean, it's a benefit for business in the bottom line. It's a market worth $8 trillion. It's a benefit for people with disabilities and their families. And it's a benefit for society. Because if we, if we release the, the value and potential of everyone, society fully benefits if we're leaving 20 percent in a position of dependency i don't i don't see how we're benefiting society and i think the ilo have released figures to say that in many of the oecd countries disability exclusion costs gdp seven percent i mean that's just that's insane and i'm going to start spouting off these crazy things like it's it is obscene to me that in this day and age we have more clothes designed for dogs than we do with people with disabilities. In the UK alone, we have, what, 100,000 vegans, but our supermarkets serve them better than they do the 13 million people who have a disability. So there's sort of this craziness that's going on, but it's a great opportunity. I just think it's one of these most unbelievable opportunities for business right now in this time of hyper-competition. And my big challenge to business is, hey, Who's going to be the early adopter? Who's going to see disability as a strategic opportunity and a strategic driver? Because it's there. You know, who, who's going to notice, you know, what's right under their noses? Uh, and whoever is, 
well, you know, we've seen who the early adopters of stuff before and how they've benefited. Let's see what's going to happen here. And I mean, early adopters right throughout the business and the brand. Obviously, I would say this because I've worked in this sector for, for so long as well, but it is clear. I mean, what do you say about disability inclusion, but it's about human inclusion as well and I don't know if this came from from her but I I certainly associate this with Susan Scott Parker who I know you know well and founded BDF about disability being part of the human condition and I think I think the quote is that you know you're either disabled or or not disabled yet so it's actually everybody see this is my thing disability we use this word them and and they and I'm like well hold on disability is going to touch every single human being's life at some point that's a fact that's a fact. I'm not making it up. I'm not trying to be dramatic. It's just a fact. And we need to remember that when the crisis that exists for the current people who have disabilities is your crisis too, because it will be at some point. I, one of my other favorite Susan quotes is like, why are we making a business case for humans? <laughs> I mean, like seriously, business is about people. But one of the things that I, when we released the Valuable 500, you know, I finally had the courage to position a piece of film called hashtag diverse ish and that was for you know the 18 years that i've been in the space of disability business inclusion and we've had massive success in it and one of the key pieces of success has been ceo engagement hence the valuable 500 but one of the greatest blocks was captured in this hashtag diverse ish films which is so disability is now part of the dni agenda but it's the poor cousin right and so You'll have, like, I think the stats is 90% of the companies in the world claim that diversity is a priority. 4% consider disability. So my challenge to the corporate world is you cannot say you are committed to diversity. You cannot say you are committed to inclusion if you are leaving disability off. You can't because it's 20% of the population. And my great fear in this world is actually that we in the diversity inclusion agendas are pitting humanity and agendas against each other. These silos of race against gender, against LGBTQ, against disability, and disability will always lose out. And that's another fact. So my big kind of challenge to the corporate world is end this silo DNI. Actually, DNI should be a part of sustainability and the leader should be, should be responsible for inclusive business right across its supply chain. And we need to stop this pitting against each other because that is not what inclusion is Mm. i think that's what i want to say in this year let's end the excuses let's end this because it doesn't serve anybody it doesn't i think the quote that i don't remember where you said that where i heard you say this but i've definitely i'm attributing this to you but the a la carte approach to to inclusion you're kind of picking pick and mix of of what you're going to look at yeah I feel very strongly about this because we shouldn't be in a situation that, that we have an a la carte approach. Oh, that works against that works better to my brand or to whatever I'm doing. You do not. The idea of a hierarchy of exclusion and inclusion is insane and pick and mix and a la carte DNI. No, that is completely counterintuitive. So I think that the best example that I've seen as one of the most successful companies in the world is Apple around universal design. They don't do pick and mix DNI. So look, if that's the greatest incentive for any company in the world or any leader in the world, there you go. Yeah. You, know? you, you mentioned the diverse-ish video as well. We'll include a link to that in the notes for the show. I know the people who have seen that have 
universally the people in my world that have seen it have loved it i know it's been viewed thousands and, and thousands of times but i remembered i think the last time we were physically in the same room together was was some before christmas and you had said yeah. I don't think you had recorded it, but you had sort of, and you couldn't kind of go into in, too much into what it was about, but you had said it's going to be a bit cheeky and yeah. a bit provocative. So I just wondered, given in my world, everybody has, has kind of loved it, but has there been any kind of negative reaction? Has it been a bit too close to the bone for some people? Actually, it's the opposite. So I was terrified that to produce this satire, this sort of satirical look, like I didn't, we didn't want to shame anybody. I want to be really clear about that. This was never about shaming. This is just about presenting a situation the way it is it's a fact and every single scenario in these films is based on a true story actually multiple times of a true story <laughs> so um i didn't want to shame anybody but i was really worried that you know people would hate us but you know the uh, the complete opposite is true so you know the response was oh my gosh this is about time that made me feel really uncomfortable that's really squirmy it's best of british humor it's so beautifully done and that's to amv uh, who did it who are the the brains behind the maltesers ads actually but you know what I felt after Davos? I was like, oh my gosh, I should have been braver. We should have dialed it up even harder. So we've come out with a two-minute edit of the original three minutes, which is even a little stronger. And I am amazed at how worried I was not to cause offense. And now when on the other side of it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I think we should have been a little bit more obvious. Some of the feedback from America is they, they were like, huh? They didn't really get it because it wasn't so dialed up and so that's why we did the dial up but no it has been really i think the basic word is funny squirmy the squirm funny comes squirm. across like you definitely resonated the kind of we're not doing disability we're doing gender or or something else or this year. we'll do we're going to do it in the future or i love the particular one um there's a small clip of one about fashion and they're just brilliant they're just yeah, yeah, well, it just might not fit with our brand or, you know, the, all of the things we've heard or witnessed ourselves. I think maybe we should, I, I want it to be a way for us to laugh at ourselves, but also just to say, wow, we just need to do something about this. Yeah. So that video was launched at the same time that, that you were at yeah. Davos. And we haven't, like, we've kind of alluded to, to what happened there and what you were doing there, but to talk to us about Davos and the valuable 500. Yeah, well, so you referred to the fact I, I rode across uh, Colombia on a horse. I mean, there's, there's a theme with me and animals <laughs> and adventures and trying to make a point, but that was called hashtag valuable and it reached 810 million people and was really trying to discuss this worldwide call to action and how we could make it a reality. And what we discovered is, or what we agreed to is we need to find you know, several of the world's most prominent and influential CEOs, a couple of very influential brands, and then to get on the most influential platforms in the world to launch this thing called the Valuable 500. And so in 2018, Paul Poman, the outgoing CEO of Unilever, became my best partner in crime and just respect because he was the very first leader in all of the world of business, business leader now, to ever stand for disability like Sheryl Sandberg would have stood for gender and it's an extraordinary feat I mean I can't believe we got to 2018 and we never had a, a global CEO standing with us but that was the truth so with him then came people like Richard Branson and Janet Riccio of Omnicom and it was very exciting to start seeing that merging and then I was lucky enough to sign up at Virgin Media under the extraordinary leadership of Jeff Dodds and made happen by Katie Buchanan and then Omnicom the full Omnicom group globally as our strategic partners and the next big thing was, well, what is the most influential platform in the world? Well, that's the World Economic Forum in Davos. I did not want it to be a special session, a side session. 
I wanted it on the main stage in Davos and I wanted the world's most influential brands and CEOs to be discussing disability business inclusion and I wanted nothing less than that because the frightening truth is that before One Young World never has disability been on the plenary or main stage of any interdisciplinary business forum in the world and that is shocking and so One Young World helped us do it and as I referred to earlier in the interview I was saying that on the 20th of October 2018 Paul and I are going and we're going to get on the stage of Davos and so we did because our allies for change are that next generation and they insisted upon it and so on the 24th of January we had a press conference to launch the Valuable 500 which is amazing in itself it's a world economic forum press conference and then an hour and a half later we had the historic landmark panel where we discussed disability business inclusion and the need for leadership accountability where paul poman from unilever and carolyn tasted from procter and gamble i mean this is particularly amazing to competitors peter and grauer from bloomberg duncan tate from fujitsu and julie sweet from accenture joined us and that moment was broken incredible moment and the valuable 500 had been launched with uh, barclays only an hour and a half before and accenture and unilever and fujitsu as well so i mean great a great moment in time and which i hope we will never come back from and so i'm be really clear i know i'm over talking is but the valuable 500 very simply is to get 500 companies around the world in 2019 to put disability on their board agenda make a commitment to action and then shout about that or share that action with the business and the world and the ceo is responsible so it's the ceo signature we have a year to do it we have a year and you had talked earlier about the impact of being an early adopter you, you fired off a few names there the unilevers and the barclays and oh the yeah you have 500 to recruit so who were the first to to be fair the, the most extraordinary thing is when you have omnicom and virgin media strategic partners that's great but and they were they're the first in to say and then paul poman with unilever that was amazing but what was so fabulous is to see companies from the UK like Barclays, amazing. And then really, and led by Ashok as well, which is fabulous. And then Duncan Tate got Fujitsu on. And I just need to make a shout out to Kay Allen there. I also want to make a shout out to like Accenture, who came through globally, as did Microsoft come through globally the night before that we were to launch it. A Mexican company, our first Mexican company in Cineopolis, which is phenomenal and Danske Bank just joined you know last week you're seeing the move and there's a lot more names so we have 80 interested companies which will be drip feeding out as they come but one of the things I want to be really clear about on this is EY did a report with us just coming up to Davos and everybody has has agreed that if we don't get C-suite buy-in this is just gonna this is just gonna just be such a slow move through our business and we had three stats that came out from this EY report. Number one is 56% of board or the C-suite that we interviewed had never had disability at board level, despite 7% of our C-suite have a direct experience of disability. Four out of five of them hide it. Now, the reason the Valuable 500 is very directed at leaders is because we know leaders are going to make that change. But if we're hearing that 56% of board members are not hearing it, how can we move that dial? And if we're also hearing that 7% of our C-suite, four out of five of them, like me, are hiding it, isn't that saying something about how disability is really welcomed in business? So that's really where the valuable 500 and we're having those big brands like the Barclays and the Unilevers and the Accentures and the Microsofts and 
you know, that's where it's big because they, I hope, are going to give confidence to other leaders to follow suit. It feels like with the with the leaders, I mean, I absolutely agree about the importance of leaders and, you know, it's certainly central to, to BDF's ethos as well that, you know, not much of substance will happen without their buy-in. It feels almost like there's kind of two tipping points that you're describing with the leaders. And like one is like actually getting leaders to support the agenda and like you have the kind of visionaries and the, and the, and the early adopters like your Paul Polmans and your Satya Nadellas and the Richard Bransons. Yeah. But then it feels like there's almost like this next frontier, which is actually getting leaders who are open about their own their own disability as well. Yeah. So there's those names that I reeled off there. Richard Branson is kind of notable. He talks about, you know, his experience of dyslexic. I was also thinking about, so as part of this this podcast series, I was speaking with a guy called Daniel Proust. So he is the UK's ambassador to the Philippines, but he has uh, happens to have epilepsy. And I had asked him about this thing about what is it that stops leaders in particular or what is specific about being a leader that might stop you from from being open about a disability and he thought about it and was kind of saying you know when you've been successful and you've reached a level like there's almost this kind of cost benefit analysis so like you can have the the extent of your impact like the positive impact is is massive but there's also this sense that you have more to lose by being by being open so i wondered yeah, like how far are we from a, a group of valuable leaders who are all kind of out and proud about having a, a, a disability and what do, you, what do you think needs to happen to get there? Forever the optimist believe this could be the year for it. And I think if this was to happen, the watershed would be extraordinary. It's a real tipping point because what we're noticing is the confidence of CEOs to talk about disability it's not there right now. And they rightly have, or rightly or wrongly, that's up for discussion, you know, they have kind of given the accountability for disability down the food chain, you know, uh, as they have with diversity and inclusion, which I don't think is right in the first place. I think what we need to see is leaders become confident, whether they have a lived experience of disability or not, to start open the conversation because companies, whether they're at a beginning of that inclusion journey, disability inclusion journey are scaling because can I just say there is remarkable examples of best practice throughout a we can see in UK companies I mean unbelievable what the biggest sadness to me is the gap is the CEO doesn't know about it or the board doesn't know about it and it's not reported at board level so you can have a company beginning scaling or leading regardless of where a, a company is the CEO we need to build confidence in those CEOs to talk about it and one great way to help that happen is when we have CEOs who have a lived experience. And if they don't have a lived experience, is how can we help them talk about it in a very human way? And I think that's the big issue right now. It's the confidence of the leaders to do it and not be worried that they're going to be shamed or criticized or have, you know, have a, a thousand arrows shot at them. I think if we want to see a movement forward, we have to try and create the environment for them to be comfortable to speak about it and to be comfortable to begin the journey or to continue the journey or lead the journey. But it has to happen at leadership level. It has to. And I think the more of the leaders that will come out and say, I have a direct experience, I think that will help that conversation radically. You know, recognize that disconnect between you know, the C-suite and what's that and some of the good practice that's happening within the organization because i'm oh, sure yeah. many leaders will will be residing over organizations where there are amazing kind of allies programs programs Huge. that are helping people to to be open and be themselves on any number of, of, of topics but that probably doesn't register at, at their level but i mean you know that better than anybody in in, in the work that you're organized i mean how many people are you dealing with 
within businesses who are doing amazing work, like amazing work. But what I don't understand is why that amazing work is not being recognized at board level. And, and it's built into brand and it's built into communications and built into story and built into pride so that we can build more of that and we can learn from that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't see that we're going to see that accelerated change until we look at what we're doing really well. Or the other problem is I've heard a lot about companies say, oh, we don't want to do something, make a noise until we feel we've done enough. And that has been the biggest obstacle for change because you're like going, it's okay if you don't do, if you don't do everything, just begin. So when Peter Grauer, the chair of Bloomberg on the stage of the World Economic Forum in Davos on that main panel says, we're not doing enough. It was an incredible moment because what he did was gave permission to all chairs and all CEOs across the world to start. And it was incredible because you could just see all the panelists just all went, oh, well, if we feel the same. And it suddenly everybody's shoulders dropped, you know, and it was just like amazing moment. It's okay. You weren't supposed to do all of it. The big finger pointing is if you just don't begin, yeah, don't change, just don't begin the journey. I agree. You know, I work with hundreds of businesses and I recognize that reticence to, to speak about taking small steps. But what I really like about the approach that, you know, organizations like Barclays or Sainsbury's have, which is, you know, they're publicly committed, but they're publicly committed to improving their practice and to becoming yes. you know, the most inclusive organization, whether yeah. it's the FTSE 100 or, or a retailer. And that gives you a lot of like they're doing both doing amazing work like it has to be said and they are but, it, but they're two superb companies they're two superb examples when it's right through the business but, uh, but what i like about the way that they frame that commitment publicly is it, there's a lot of wiggle room to get things wrong in there as well and you know when, yeah. in a large organization like things will, will happen anyway but committing to become accessible and inclusive and to become the the best i think there shouldn't be anything that stops that's so well said because if we're innovating in this space we are going to get it wrong we are going to screw up and we are going to fail. What I'm finding very difficult at the world at the moment, nothing to do with disability is, aren't we just so intolerant of each other as human beings that when we make mistakes, people are just annihilated? Well, actually part of being a human is we are going to make us mistakes. My big thing is all I want people to be is accountable. That's it. But we're going to screw up and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fail. And in the issue of disability business inclusion, you are going to probably fail lots more than you're going to win for the beginning. And that's okay. And by the way, any athlete, I was just at an amazing event with one of the famous, most famous jockeys of all our time. And he said he'd lost more races than he won. So this obsession about getting it perfect straight off the bat, I mean, hello, that's, that's not going to happen. And that is definitely the wrong way to approach it. And I love the way Sainsbury's and Barclays say it's an intention. It's a journey. It's where we will go but we are committed to trying. That definitely makes sense on a, at a business level. But I, it also reminded me of something that I wanted to talk to you about, the sort of individual level. So like, I don't know, you describe yourself, whether you describe yourself as a social entrepreneur or an activist or a, or a change agent, you know, thinking many people listening to, to this podcast will be looking to make some kind of change in, in their world, you know, whether it's in their organization, in their community, globally, or, you know, maybe just in, in their life. And I think the fear of taking those first steps of not acting, I think, is probably one of the biggest, biggest barriers. But there's also this thing that I see a lot, which is like we like to put people on pedestals and, and say, 
they're extraordinary and uh, in a way that I'm not. So I'll kind of, I'll leave the change making and the revolutionary stuff to them. For example, you know, somebody looks at you and says, well, look, that Caroline's a kind of TED speaker, shared a stage with, you know, Ariana Huffington and Sheryl Sandberg and Paul Polman and Davos, all that kind of stuff. So obviously this is an extraordinary person. So I just wondered, like, is that something you've heard from people or like, is that something you've even, are they thoughts that go through your mind thinking about other people? Like, just ex- interested in exploring like those doubts and any kind of tips you have for people in terms of overcoming them and like taking initial steps? There is nothing exceptional about me. There is nothing inspiring about me. And actually a word that goes with disability, which I absolutely can't bear is the word inspiring. If you only knew what goes on in my head about how I don't feel good enough what I do isn't good enough, you'd just be shocked. Um, I certainly was not born into a Walton's family. My, my family childhood was not easy. I think that probably kind of gave me a lot of grit, if I'll be honest, a grit and, and a really strong resilience muscle that was flexed a lot going through my childhood. The one thing that I would say is one of my greatest curses is I'm a recovering disease to please person. <laughs> I mean, I have the disease to please and make the world better and it's dreadful and I'm trying to recover from it. But I think I have no right to give anybody any advice on anything except one thing that I am learning every day. The only thing that you can be an expert in is in yourself. And that's really very much what my father did teach me and wanted for me and wanted for, for both, for all three of his children, be yourself. And your reputation is all that you have, meaning who you are and how authentically you live, which I think is a bit ridiculous since he brought me up as a sighted child when I I wasn't that. That's a bit of hypocrisy, but I think that's what he really wanted. And I think for any of us, it is just, uh, you started this by saying it's the bravest thing in the world to be yourself, because it really is. The one thing I'd suggest is that none of us should make assumptions about anybody else. Let's not assume somebody else's life is one way or the other. Do not compare yourself to somebody else because if you do that, you go down a rabbit hole. And let's be honest, there's always going to be somebody better or worse than you the whole time anyway. And I think the real truth of it is the part that's hard about life is we are entirely responsible and accountable for ourselves. I wish I could blame other people and other things, but I can't because it's just completely up to myself. And the invitation really is in life, particularly if you have something that you're hiding um, or in my case, or anybody else who's hiding a disability, I promise you, it's just a whole heap easier when it's not hidden. Because the time that you spend in hiding something away for fear of rejection or shame is just, it's such a waste of energy and time, but that takes time. And they say, you can't put an old head on young shoulders. Yikes, cliches are true. But I think every single part of us can be part of this change making for inclusion. Every single one. You don't need to be a social entrepreneur. You don't need to be a CEO. You don't need to be Brendan Roach running a podcast. You don't need to be working for Business Disability Forum. You, the very simple thing is, for me, treat others and the planet how you'd like to be treated. And that's the very simple truth. If you see somebody being excluded, ask why. If you haven't had your voice heard, let it be heard whatever way you feel. Because if we join the dots of all of our voices together, we can actually make the change. We don't all have to be Richard Branson. That's a really useful message. So Valuable 500 has been launched. You have your early adopters. So what what are you going to be doing for the next? next Uh, My job right now is to make sure we get, Paul Pullman wants the Valuable 5,000, you know, typical (laughs) ambitious. So, and you know, I think he's probably got a point. 
And because there are 10,000 companies out there who are disability confident, so I'm, every single one of them could be a valuable 500, okay? Mm-hmm. Mind you, I, I want companies from all around the world. So that's number one. We also have four very, what we call, high-impact targets under the valuable 500. One is that we are looking for 30 young people under the age of 35, all who experience disability in their daily lives, working to be part of a tribe of us who are going to help get the valuable 500 to be a reality and, and get our messaging out there. The second thing is um, we want to see system change happen. So we're trying to see how we can get disability included in uh, performance indexes like the Dow Jones Sustainability Index or the FTSE for Goods. That's a whole chunk of work that's going to be living, eat, sleeping and living that one. Third thing is that we are out to amplify the message of diversity and change this narrative along with all the great people already out there to make as much noise, join all the dots. It doesn't matter if you're working in the sector or not, just say you want a world and a business world that includes people with disabilities. That's the best thing anybody can do for us right now. And then fourthly is to be part of creating a collaborative ecosystem. We have over 50 allies and advisors, and we have you guys as expert partners. We want to create an ecosystem that works to help with each other because collectively, globally, we can really, really deliver on this. There's nothing to stop all of us delivering on this if we work together. So there are sort of four things. I want to have in Davos next year, the biggest party, whether it's 501 or 5,000 companies, but I want to be able to announce that number. And that community will be as strong as I hope the Fortune 500. Mm. And then from that point on, we will see where we go. But that will be 500 CEOs, 500 actions, 500 workforces. That's the tipping point, the tipping point, the catalyst for leadership accountability and to release the potential of 1.3 billion people worldwide. Yeah. It can't be ignored any longer. Working in this sector, like that last action around some of the mapping of who's doing what and joining the dots together is a really important piece of work. Look forward to, to collaborating and being, being part of that. And it sounds like Davos is definitely on the agenda again for, for next year then. Well, I don't know if they're going to necessarily let me go into the, the, the Congress Center, but we will be there. Yeah. Uh, and we, you need to have a target and a goal. And also, can I hold my hand up to say, we don't have all the answers. I don't even claim for a second to know everything that we're going to do. I'm sure we're not going to get it all right, but that is not enough of a reason not to try. This might be the first attempt and somebody much better and much brighter and younger probably than me will probably try this again another year and, and maybe slam dunk it. But this is enough to begin and I hope we'll have created a platform that other people can lead through in the future. I think that's certainly true. Before we go, where can people find out more about you and about the Valuable 500? Well, you don't need to find out about me because I'm, I'm the most irrelevant thing. This is a movement about uh, organizations, people, allies, and this massive tribe of ours. I suggest you go to thevaluable500.com. It's, it's the website that will give you everything that you need to know. You'll see who our partners and allies are. If you're an organization that wants to be a Valuable 500, you will see how to get involved and get in touch, and we can help you craft your your action commitment and and all that. If you're an an organization working in the space, come be one of our allies. We love you all around the world, wherever that may be. Um, And if you're just a person interested, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Help us just make noise. Let's be unstoppable. Thank you. Well, we will certainly include all of that information as well in the in the notes that go out with this show. I would definitely encourage all of our all of our listeners to go over and and uh, and check it out. Caroline, 
it's been fantastic speaking to you no thank you for your time it's been a real pleasure thank you for listening to the podcast we would love to hear what you think so please like and review the show you can subscribe by finding us on platforms such as soundcloud acast itunes you just need to search for us using the words business disability forum